What is up, folks? You are listening to the Emulsion Podcast. I'm your host, Justin Kana. This is episode 31, and that means that you can literally listen to this show every day for a month and still be all the way caught up with all the restaurant slash chef slash fine dining news that's mattered to me over the past eight months. That's crazy. We've been doing this for about eight months. We're on episode 31. We're live on YouTube today, and I think we will be for the next five or so episodes. So if you want to join in on the conversation, make sure you are subscribed and hit that little notification bell so you can get a little bit of a heads up when this show goes live, just because I want your opinions. I want your perspectives. I want your questions. That's what makes the show great is you folks. So go ahead and tweet at me if you aren't listening live at Justin underscore Kana and hashtag the emulsion so I can find you. Today's beverage is almost done, actually. It is a little 3 a.m. It's 3 a.m. in um, Australia. Today's beverage is a orange juice, just an orange juice. It's it's, it's Monday morning here. I've already had my coffee. I've been up for a a considerable amount of hours already, but uh, I needed a little bit of a, a sugar rush as well as maybe a little bit of nutrition, vitamin C action. It's starting to get cold here in Seattle. It's cold today. I'm wearing layers, actually. Um, stemless wine glass, simple orange juice. It's almost gone. Let's finish it off. All right. So let's get into the show. First story today is a story out of California, and you may or may not have seen it floating around your newsfeed already, or it may or may not sound familiar to you if you've been in the fine dining sphere for a few years here in the U.S., and that's that California's Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals reinstated their ban on foie gras this past week. So, first off, I recommend you read the full article on Eater. That will definitely uh, make make you a little bit more well-informed, and you can also giggle a little bit when you look at the caption on the photo that, that is captioned foie gars. It's a little bit of a typo there. But I wanted to make sure I give you the full timeline, or at least the reported one, here on the Emulsion Podcast. So, in 2004, all the way back in 2004, the law was enacted in California that banned the sale of foie gras in the state. So in 2012, eight years later, the importing of the product was also prohibited. So that prevented companies like Hudson Valley Foie Gras, the arguably some of the highest quality and one of the largest producers of the product here in the U.S., to send any of their stuff to California. So because there are only a few producers in California, this ban effectively made it like a one-two punch. It made it so that if you can't import it and you can't sell it, how are you going to serve it, right? Well, at a couple of restaurants, you know, us restaurant folks, we're pretty kind of cheeky and kind of don't like to respect the rules all the time. So a lot of spots would do something where they would actually make their own loophole. They would give away foie gras instead of selling it. So now you probably ask, how can you do that and be profitable as a restaurant? Imagine like a $40 brioche service right? We just happen to want to give you some free foie gras mousse with it. Uh, Yeah, that's exactly what happened. So you'd get these like overinflated prices on, you know, whatever you would imagine that foie gras would go with where you would, you know, sell something for a very, very high price point. And then they would just happen to give you foie gras. Or for example, you'd get a tasting menu where a quote unquote free course would be the foie gras course. That's certainly what happened uh, at the French Laundry when I was there. And there was a big to do because Per Se, which is the sister restaurant of the French Laundry, was able to serve foie gras however much they wanted because that was New York. New York was totally fine with it, but in, in California, where the French Laundry was, there was no way to serve uh, foie gras without getting a, a slap on the wrist from the law. So that's what we ended up doing, was giving it away, quote-unquote, in, in, that, in that spot in the menu where it was supposed to go. 
Now, in 2015, fast forward, so 2012 was the import ban. 2015, a panel of three, a panel of three judges in California unanimously ruled the decision wrong because it made and and that made it okay for restaurants to serve it because it posed quote no conflict to the federal law, end quote. So. Back in 2017, uh, well, now that we're in 2017, it seems as though the ban is back and not a lot of people are happy about it, with the exception of PETA. Yeah, PETA's, PETA's, PETA's okay with it. And they're actually happy about it, saying, quote, no one but the most callous chefs could stomach and revealing that foie gras is torture on toast and unimaginably cruel, end quote. What are your thoughts on the foie gras ban and just foie gras in general? Do you enjoy it? Do you oppose it? Does anybody enjoy cooking with it? I personally love the the, the flavor, the texture. It's kind of like a blank but really luxurious canvas. So I'm really, really happy to be in Washington, a state where it's possible to kind of head over to my favorite market and pick up a lobe if I so choose to. But I think it's really, really interesting that there you know, hasn't been a huge amount of, um, you know, Sorry, I was trying to play with the comments on YouTube um, because your guys' comments keep disappearing. I, again, I'm, I'm trying this for the first time, but uh, I, I see it as something that's really, really sad. Um, yeah, sour cream, sour cream and foie gras. What, what, what's wrong with that? That's coming from Sebastian on YouTube. So um, I think it's just really, really interesting that there's no... Um, it's, it's coming from an interesting place. A lot of chefs are really pissed off. I saw some headlines this morning saying that you know, something along the lines of we're willing to ban foie gras, but not assault rifles and comparing it to that makes it puts it definitely in a little bit of perspective. But I'd, I'd be interested to hear your thoughts because this comes to, kind of seems to be something that's constantly going back and forth, at least in that state itself. Next up is a story I wasn't quite sure if I was going to cover, but screw it, we're going to do it. And you'll see why in a moment, and that's the story from Fast Company this past week, all about a startup that wants to take over the bodega market. So, yep, there's two ex-Google employees who want to take automated bodegas, which are essentially just premium stocked vending machines, and take over the world with them. Well, maybe not take over the world, but definitely make hundreds of thousands of them so they're within walking distance of you wherever you are for the next time that your non-perishable craving kicks in. For those of you that don't know, a bodega is basically a term for a small convenience store here in the U.S. They're usually prominent in larger cities where they... You know, it, you, you, you've, you've been in one before, regardless of what city you've ever been in, because the, their idea is that there's going to be an app that you can go into and double check to make sure that your deodorant or toothpaste or Kleenex is there, and then just go ahead and walk and get it. And these will be in, you know, post offices and on street corners and in little, little, uh, not sometimes run by Indian people. Thank you, Sebastian. Uh, however, there's been some logistical questions, right? This is whether where things seem kind of likely to fall apart for Bodega. And what I'm going to do now is read directly from the article, just because they say it a little bit than I than I will. Quote, even with their Wi-Fi connections and app-connected camera sensors, the units themselves are still just offering consumers a basic model of unmanned commerce, only with smaller, fancier machines to process the transactions. What Bodega does offers as, as a differentiator are the number of unique products per unit, 100 products per unit, where the average vending machine has between 20 and 40, and the promise is that the products will not just be tailored, that the products will not just be tailored to their general environments, protein bars in the gym, tampons in a sorority house, but to their specific users. A promise of machine learning will, as Fast Company explains, 
constantly reassess the 100 most needed items in that community, which is super interesting, right? Because you could essentially have a community where everybody wants to go out and get a very, very specific brand of granola bar because there's, you know, a huge uh, following of people that are gluten-free in that in that neighborhood or there's an you know and the the machines will learn that and then be able to be constantly restocked so that if you as a consumer constantly visit that vending machine and buy the same product over and over again the machine learning will ideally make it so that you can get that product every single time you go but apparently there's a huge amount of logistical problems that this company is facing but i think about and when I say logistical problems, I mean things like how do you restock the, these machines? How do you make sure that every single time that that consumer that's loyal to that quote-unquote bodega goes in, that they can always have what they want? Uh, because if you have 100,000 machines, how do you make sure that that scales properly? But when I think about questions like that, I think about Uber and how basic that app was when it first started, or Airbnb, for example, and how all of them have evolved with scale. The article basically mentions how a startup can prevent itself from being copied, like kind of differentiating itself, but being put out of business by someone who can do logistics better, which is, you know, yet to be seen with this company. And now to the reason that I wanted to the reason that I wanted to cover this story, because you're probably thinking, why does this matter to me? I came here for chef news, but it matters because it's disruption through technology and it's happening to a ton of different industries. And I, I, I want I want to make you aware of it. I want to make sure that you're thinking about it so that you can effectively adapt as the future becomes present. Right. Look at Japan. The vending machine culture there is insane. They've taken machines and replaced humans, and it's been working for years. You can literally go up to a tiny noodle shop. Now, this is not a vending machine story. This is actually a restaurant story where you can go up to a tiny noodle shop, tap a screen a few times, and then you can walk inside and sit down, and in a few minutes, a piping hot bowl of noodles gets slid in front of you. There's no backlash there, right? Not At least not anymore. It basically just saves time and money, and that's what people are willing to pay for. Maybe it's just me living in a city that's essentially supported by Amazon, a huge company that will no doubt buy this bodega company if they ever become successful and then just turn all those tiny vending machines into even smarter, better stocked machines. And who are we to complain, right? There's There, there was a backlash when Uber came out against cab companies because this quote-unquote new app was destroying small-run family cab businesses. But who's to say an idea like that couldn't have come from inside the cab companies themselves? Who's to say that this bodega idea can't come from inside a bodega company themselves? Why didn't one bodega lower on the Lower East Side of Manhattan ask themselves, how can we put ourselves out of business and then work to make that happen? This internet thing disrupts a lot of stuff, and it's only going to keep happening. Make sure you adopt that mindset, because I want all of you to win, everybody who's listening to this show. How can you use technology to your advantage and go on the offense and make most of these amazing tools that we have at our disposal useful for you? What are your thoughts on this? I, it, it's super interesting to me, aside from the name. I mean, they could have named it something other than Bodega to kind of <laughs> differentiate it from that, but... It's interesting to me how the backlash happened to this company in a very, very 2017 environment. Next up, and a super depressing story out of Napa, California, the city where I used to live for two years, is suffering from dried grapes. That's right. The world-famous wine region suffered three days of triple-digit temperatures last week for all of us Fahrenheit people. 
that's I think plus over 30, 30, 35 degrees if we're thinking about Celsius, which is it, it, it's it's crucial because this is the harvest time. So this is where the grapes are pretty much ready to go. And because it didn't get cool enough at night, a ton of these wine grapes essentially turned into raisins right on the vines. So coming from a year of drought the past few years, the winemakers were actually really excited to get a decent yield this year, and they were unfortunately met with an unexpected loss, which is crazy sad because the article quotes, the best we can hope for is that they become dry raisins, which can at least go into cereal boxes, end quote. So if you buy cereal in the in the U.S. over the next couple months, maybe you'll actually find amazing quality wine grapes being a part of that, which is super sad, right? Global warming, bad luck. It's going to be interesting to see what the 2017 vintages of all of these um, coming out of all these wineries is like. There's always a story that goes along with every year, but when the vineyard owners are citing shriveling up of almost half their crop, it's very, very difficult to say how things are going to sh- are going to fare for the Napa Valley going forward. Next up is an interview coming out of Eater all about Jen Ag, who is a restaurateur out of Toronto, where the article published is titled, Bro, quote, Bro Culture is a Problem for Restaurants, end quote. I just want to give you a few quotes from Jen first. When asked, well, bro culture is about, quote, masculinity rather than, quote, men to some degree. Do you agree with that? She answered, no. Absolutely, but women who operate within that system might feel the need to conform or adjust or joke around in the right way. The issue is that if you are in a leadership and you think that this bro culture is camaraderie, you might not actually be looking at your situation all that clearly. You've got people under you who are young cooks, young dishwashers, young servers, whatever. You're setting the tone in your restaurant. You're saying racist jokes, sexist jokes, rape jokes, whatever kind of ugly fucking jokes you think are funny, and your young kids want to keep their job, so that becomes acceptable and gets repeated, and then you be, be you can be an inspiring leader, a good chef, a good teacher, and a shitty bro all at the same time. And I think that's what people forget sometimes, that we contain multitudes. You might want to learn from this bro as a young person. You might want to be aware enough and woke enough, for lack of a better word, to understand that it's shitty, it's a bad environment, and that this person is being awful. But what do you do? Do you go to your boss and say, you know what, man, I feel like that joke was kind of racist. No, you don't. When asked, why is it so hard for people to stamp this out? She answers, because it's the water you swim in. There's this sort of idea that in order to make great food, you have to be tough. You have to work that 16-hour shift. 12 hours isn't enough. I know it's a key buzzword, but it's toxically masculine. I think that you need to set the tone. Everything is top-down, so when shitty things happen in restaurants, the owner is responsible in some ways. I think owners need to take more responsibility in that sense instead of just going, oh, I had no idea. I have, I've had people criticize me super publicly and say, well, that's just how restaurants are. She wants to take the fun out of kitchens. And I, it's like, no, I swear like a sailor. And I tell funny stories that are maybe not super PG, but they're not making someone the butt of the joke. That's the, that's the only point here. When you're making people feel uncomfortable, feel humiliated, that's where the line is, end quote. And this story hits super close to my heart on a couple different levels. One, because I grew up in a ton of kitchens that had this bro culture. I never really agreed with it, and that's probably one of the reasons why I was never super popular in a lot of the restaurants that I started off in. It just never felt right, and that all that, that all changed when I went to Norway, and my chef, Christopher Hatuft, not only didn't tolerate any racist or sexist jokes or any of that, But he was also supremely open to me destroying the screaming, aggressive culture of the kitchen when I became a sous chef there. I just didn't tolerate it. And it became incredibly productive 
uh, for me and for everyone around me to work. Ideas flowed better and morale was better. Not to say that everyone enjoyed it because it's hard when you become insanely skilled as a cook in that kind of bro environment and then come to a place where they aren't doing things that way and you have to kind of reevaluate how you behave. So no, it wasn't for everyone, but it's something that I want to emphasize to you folks is to be that voice, right? It, it can't, it, it 100% comes from the top, like she says, and you don't, I know, have 100% control over that when it's not your your space, your establishment, your restaurant, your kitchen, but at a certain point, the buck can kind of stop with you if you're the one that decides not to either laugh at that joke or not, like, if you can tell that person that what they said is not okay, I'm going to kind of get off my soapbox now, but I, I hope covering this story has made you at least think a little bit about the culture of the kitchen that you work in and how everyone who listens to the Emulsion podcast can work to kind of better the industry in some way for the next generation. Next up is a couple of quickie stories here before we get into the, to today's non-industry story, and here's a great place for any of you folks watching live to kind of get your stories or questions in before we transition. Um, I'd love to see those comments roll in so I can talk about whatever you guys find interesting over this past week or so. So first quickie story comes um, from the Emmys last night. Lena Waithe and Aziz Ansari won an Emmy last night, all for their Thanksgiving episode on Master of None, the kind of food-centric Netflix show. And the reason that I wanted to cover it on the show today, not because of the award itself, which isn't really industry news, I guess, but the award was an outstanding writing for a comedy series. But I just wanted to basically quickly reinforce the idea to you all about how can you think about food differently? How can you tell stories using food that's not traditional, right? Hopefully you go into your week if the, or Monday, if this, if, if this Monday is your day off, and you think about that. How can you use media or art or sculpture or stage performance and bring your food into that in some sort of way and reach a bunch of different people in a different way without the traditional, you know, kind of having um, dinner dinner kind of happening. Uh, question from Josh Burridge, your, my opinion on gastroparks closing. Um, I need a little bit more information. Can you tell me a little bit about what gastropark is? Um, and then there's another question all about uh, chefs using drugs. Um, I've covered this on this show before. I am... I never... Did drugs. I never, that's not to say that I've never done drugs. I've experimented with marijuana. I've been drunk before in my life. That's not to say that I'm a complete angel. However, I made a very, very quick decision when I was probably 20, 21, which is right around the legal age where you can start drinking here in the US. Um, and I discovered quickly after a few nights of not being drunk um, <laughs> that it doesn't help me. It doesn't, I don't like feeling not in control and, 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 and coherent. I like being able to know that people can rely on me and they can count on me. And to me, that's super, super important. And when I'm not kind of drunk, um, I feel, I feel that I, I, when I'm not in an intoxicated state, I feel better. <laughs> How can chefs afford drugs? That's a great question, that, uh, and that we've covered that on this story before as well, where it's kind of like a vicious cycle of being a server, and how, you know, how how can you make so little money and then channel what little money you have back into this thing that makes you not productive, and then also, it's such a vicious cycle, and I think it's really really frustrating to see that happen, and it's unfortunate. It's unfortunate that 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 that's a problem that plagues our industry, 
and it attracts those kind of people. Um, I've never been a fan of it. I don't think it has a, a place anymore, which is a little bit unfortunate, but I think it's very fortunate that we can all kind of move the needle forward in a way that makes it positive. If you're a young cook that's starting off, I have a piece of advice that a friend of mine gave me that was something along the lines of, you can go incredibly fast and incredibly far in this industry if you can manage to keep yourself clean. And you can go much faster and much further if you can manage to stay away from drugs and alcohol and all that stuff. Question from Gabriel. Uh, how... What's my opinion on Vanguard cuisine? Because it's kind of going through a boom right now. I think that we are in an interesting time where cuisine, at least in the past few years, has had this a little bit of a boom um, with something along the lines of the modernist movement giving it this huge influx of modernist technique and focusing on, I hate to say gimmicks, but interactive, uh, unexpected presentations of food. And that died off really, really fast because it was kind of like a pop and a sizzle and then it kind of died. The next wave that came in was this kind of new Nordic, very minimal, back to quote-unquote the roots of, of, of food kind of movement. And that is what we're kind of experiencing now and kind of going through a tail end of, I think, what would be interesting to see and what's going to happen next is a rise of very, very exclusive places. And when I say exclusive, I mean... Think Snapchat, think uh, Twitter, and the restrictions that those apps have provided. I think that if you can manage to do something that's quote-unquote vanguard, meaning something that's new and on the cutting edge, it will be something that is very, very exclusive. So think a restaurant that only uses bivalves, or a restaurant that only uses leaves, or a restaurant that only experiments with sauces you know and the, the the only they they do like a certain type of bread and like six different kinds of sauces and you come in and you eat that and that is something that where there's 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 a drawback to exclusive I, I think it's done the age of a restaurant that can do everything I think you need to find a way to make yourself different and stand out and you also need to bring something to the table other than just food. I think that's something that's really, really understated because I don't think that it's good enough to just do great food anymore. And I think that whatever you can do to think about how you can do something a little bit different that brings value to people other than just making your food and executing well in your craft. This goes back to the episode last week, my interview with Dosfi. How can you not only master your craft, but then bring something else to the table, something that's different? And create your own niche where you can become that master at what you do. I think that's that's what's going to propel Vanguard Cuisine forward is you're going to get this insane influx of specialists, people that are very, very good at certain, certain things. And that's going to be super, super interesting. Keep keep ringing your questions in. I'm, I'm loving this. Uh, quickie story number two, Journey, the industry education and awareness platform that was launched by a gentleman by the name of Anthony Rudolph had to close its services the other day. It was very, very sad to get that email. The lack of funding is the clear cause here. Um, and that is basically why they had to close. It's just super, super sad to see something that was focused on helping the industry shutter like that. I've reached out to Anthony. I've emailed him. And he, I, he, we've met before. He used to work at Per Se, and I did as well. But 
I'm working on getting him on the show, so hopefully we can talk soon. Have you used Journey for anything? Have you seen any of their articles or attended any of their symposiums? Has it brought you any value? What would you like me to ask Anthony if I get a chance to interview him on the show? Definitely leave some, some words in the comments for me on that. Uh, another quick question that just came in is, what was a famous chef that I would like to have on the show? Um, good question. I would like to... I really, really enjoyed my interview with Sam Bartolazzo of Cheap Feed the other day. Um, he is a young Australian chef who is kind of on, on the up and up and thinking about food differently. I would like to, again, work or learn from someone who, like I just mentioned, is doing something very, very niche, very um, standing out, very uh, cutting edge where... They are focusing, they have a very, very clear vision, and they're focused on making a difference in some sort of way, making a dent in, in some sort of way. That is who I'd be interested in. Um, from the top of my head, I don't have an insane list of people. Aside from, like, the big dogs, right? I would love to talk to Anthony Bourdain. I would love to talk to David Chang. I would love to talk to um, some international chefs, ones that are you know, kind of hidden and don't often get their story told in a way that's very down-to-earth and real. I feel like a lot of the ways that a lot of these chefs get coverage sometimes is very, very romantic. So think like Chef's Table or any of these mini documentaries where it's very like grandiose and opulent and it's all about making them seem like these gods of cuisine. I would like to sit them down and like get some real talk with them, like talk talk with them from a chef's perspective and talk with them about their views on certain things that may or may not be controversial that don't do well in kind of like a Netflix documentary style uh, show, but would do great on a show like this where they can just kind of do real talk, real spit, you know what I mean? Uh, last up, and a story I'm super pumped to share, is that I'm on Eater. Um... I was on Eater this past week, and I felt like I didn't put enough emphasis on that. Eater Seattle did a great write-up on Seattle's most exciting pop-ups, and my pop-up series that me and my team at Mixed Projects are executing, which is called Ready, made the cut. Uh, so I'll leave the link down below so you guys can read all about it. Of course, I'm super pumped about it because it is so new, and it is something that we just started, and the fact that we're getting a little bit of media coverage right now is super, super exciting. Um, I also kind of like that we're super far down on the list. We're not like the first pop-up that got covered. And I kind of like that. I like knowing that we have like a long way to go. I like knowing that there's work still left to be, to be done. And I'm working hard on a way to get more content to you guys uh, on what we're up to because that's a huge part of my thesis. That's what I want to use to stand out. And that is providing content to you guys. Uh, on what I'm doing through cooking and, and executing and, and education and all of that. So that is where, I guess, we'll segue into my special announcement that I announced on the very, very first part of this uh, episode, and that is that Patreon, which is a platform that I'm currently playing around with, is hopefully going to go live this week. And that will be for you guys, and it's something, you know, it's something that you guys can do to support what I do and my vision for what I want to execute on. Um, expect all of that to kind of get launched this week for you guys, more details. Um, it's going to be nothing but content on content on content that just gets better and better for you folks. So I'm super, super excited to jump on Patreon and see what we can do with it together. Um, a couple more questions coming in. Um do, do I think that there's a, a way to make money in high-end cuisine? This is something that I learned back in the day at, in Norway. Well, I guess I learned it 
at a couple of different restaurants. So when I was at Per Se and when I was at um, this restaurant called Grace in Chicago, I learned that fine dining restaurants don't really make money. I learned that there has to be some sort of an empire to it, right, where you have to have the very traditional business model of uh, the big fine dining restaurant that's very, very opulent and gets all the stars and all the accolades. And you also have to have that kind of, you know, that, that started off with basically Paul Bocuse, where he has the little tiny little bistro that churns a lot of covers out and actually makes a margin. The reason that I want to emphasize the content so much is because I'm convinced that a fine dining restaurant can and should put out more content about themselves. There's a ton of interesting and valuable information that can be gained from learning about a restaurant. You can basically learn a ton from just watching, especially if you're someone like me who learns a lot by watching, and restaurants don't put out enough content about themselves. So I'm trying to play around with the idea of how does a restaurant that puts out a ton of content about themselves make that margin back, right? So how does a restaurant... um, Oh, my phone's going off. Sorry, guys. How does a restaurant make money through content, not just food? And that's currently what I'm playing around with, and that's my whole thesis, and that's why I've started with things like the Emulsion and why I'm starting to play around with things like Patreon and all of that stuff with you guys. Uh, Is there a chef that I would like to work for? No. Um, Yes, there. I would love to spend some time in Japan. I would love to spend some time with someone who is insanely good at... Uh, grilling. I would love to learn a little bit more about open fire cooking. It's something that I really, really enjoy, and that I, you know, maybe it's maybe it's because I feel like I never got a formal education on it. A lot of it is just me playing around with it. I really, really enjoy it, and I really feel like that is something that takes a lot of skill and execution. Um, content by content, I mean videos, articles podcasts, photos, tutorials, everything that I've already been doing. I just want to scale it more. I, I, I want to do more and more and more of it uh, because it's something that I love and something that I know brings value to a lot of people and something that scales more than a restaurant does. So back to the chef question, I think that it would be more very, very focused technique. I would love how to. I would love to learn how to butcher fish in a new way that I've never learned how to do before. I would love to learn how to do very, very simple techniques and learn principles that I can apply to different, um, yeah, I loved Echabari in Spain. I loved my, my meal there. That would be something that I would be insanely excited to do. Um, the problem is I've heard a lot of stories about going there and, you don't get to work the grill because Chef Victor is always the one that's cooking on the grill. And that's something that goes back to the content part, right? Where, you know, if someone was just in that kitchen recording him and putting out content about it, with the amount of experience that I have, I feel like I could confidently watch him and then actually get the same amount of value out of it as I would actually being there. The other thing is, with the content part, I can actually scale the feedback too. You guys could hopefully, you know, give me a little bit of a uh, questions, questions and answers, and I could actually give back to you guys in some sort of way where, I mean, you guys already do this all the time. Like right now on Instagram, on Twitter, you guys send me your questions and I'm super, super keen to answer them. It's getting to a point where, 
you know, I want to be able to do more with it. I want to be able to have you guys send me videos and have me able to be able to give you feedback. I want to be able to start to post videos of myself cooking and actually address you guys in the in the actual thing. I want to be like, hey, James, hey, Henrik, you know, like these are something that applies to you guys and the question you guys answered last week or the questions you asked last week. Uh, so all of that is in the pipeline and something that I'm currently working on to bring to you folks and just something that I want to emphasize is something that I'm thinking about constantly to differentiate myself. Uh, last up, and our non-industry story has to be all about Apple's events they did last week where they revealed the new iPhones. I swooned over the iPhone 10, but alas, I've got the 7 Plus and there's not, there's, there, to me, there's not enough reason to upgrade yet, so I'm going to wait until the X2, the 10, 2, the 11, and <laughs> Who knows what they're going to call it? They skipped over nine, so there's no there's no rules anymore what it's going to be called. But I always get excited over new Apple tech. I am kind of a little bit of an Apple fanboy. I did pick up the Apple Watch Series 3. That's on the way for me in the mail. So I can hopefully go for runs without my phone and stay, you know, stay without my phone, stay on top of my messages when I'm in the kitchen using my watch. I'm definitely pumped to see how I use it. At least that piece of tech once it arrives next week or this week, maybe. I'm not entirely sure. I'll keep you posted. It's got a red freaking dot on it. How could I not cop one? You know what I mean? So with that, this has been episode 31 of The Emulsion. Thank you so much for listening. If you have stories that you want covered on next week's show, shoot me all your articles and all your headlines and all your stories and all your questions on Twitter and hashtag The Emulsion so I can find them. Again, my username is Justin underscore Kana. And leave a thumbs up on this video if you consume that way, whether it was special edition on YouTube Live or, you know, on Facebook when I can hopefully figure out how to repost it. Consider leaving a review on iTunes if you listen to this podcast there. But regardless of where you are, I appreciate your ears and hopefully your eyes. So thank you. Thank you very much. My name's Justin Kana. Have a good one.